Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in the presence, in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be our teacher, our instructor in this time. Help us to honor you, Lord. We've set ourselves apart, and we've come here together. You said when two or three gathered together in your name, there you would be in your midst. And so, Lord, we pray for that kind of purity to be here. You would be our welcome, honored guest, and you would receive your crown and glory. There's no significance to us, God forbid, but there's only significance in you. And God, we have a greater opportunity to give you renown and praise. In our weakness, we are strong. So, God, I thank you, and I pray, God, that you would be glorified. I pray that you give wisdom to these words clarity to our thoughts, and you'd bind the work of the enemy of our souls, cast him out in the name of Jesus, and bind him, and put the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon this house. And so God, speak to us, heal us and forgive us, and cleanse us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week we've been looking at, and we have been looking back for the last several weeks, about the conditions that necessarily would be existing upon planet Earth in order for the Revelation chapter 13 to even begin to be taking place. 
And the six conditions that we looked at were, number one, a centralized global government. Number two, a global economic integration. Number three, what we looked at last week, the technological advancement and some of the wild brain chips and everything else that's going on in the world today with AI and everything else. I mean, it's just so much going on, rapidly growing. And number four of the six, we're going to look here this morning at the universal lust for power. These are all things that are assumed to be taking place in order for Revelation 13 actually to begin to take place. And you can go back and listen to those studies if you have some questions and perhaps it can fill in the blanks. But I think when people think about the lust for power, I remind, of course, of the Lord of the Rings, where every man thinks he can do well with the ring of power. He would only do good. He would never do wrong. But each man is essentially deceiving himself. And the more power you get, the more you pursue it. The more money you have tell you the truth. So one of the biggest fears, if you've known some extremely wealthy people, and if you do, I'd like to meet them. I'm joking. <laughs> but, but, but if you've known extremely wealthy people, one of the biggest fears they have is, I'm going to lose my money. It's going to be gone. And so when you find these moguls that are literally running the world, do you think that fear is alien from them? It's like they have to buy up all the farmland. They have to buy up all the production. They have to be in complete control. And once you give into that fear, there's no end to that kind of uh, mentality. And so we find ourselves again in Revelation 13. And what we see here is the rise of two beasts. One of the beasts is coming out of the sea and the other beast is coming out of the earth. And verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, Revelation 13, 1. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, so that the two beasts that are given to us, one out of the sea, one out of the earth. And these beasts, as we found, symbolize political and religious powers that exercise great authority upon the earth. The beast with seven heads and ten horns that comes out of the sea and is correlated to political power but the other beast that looks like a lamb, but spoke like the dragon, he looks like the lamb. Who is the lamb of God? Well, that's Jesus. In the last days, the deception is going to be so great. There's going to one come. He looks like the lamb, but listen to the words. You are God, is the voice of the devil. He speaks like the dragon. He communicates in the language of the, of the dragon. He looks like the lamb, but he came out of the earth and he represents the religious powers. One's political, one's religious. And it says here in the text, he causes the earth and its inhabitants to worship the beast. There's something seductive about him that he convinces or coerces people upon this earth, which he does both, to worship the Antichrist, which is the first beast. And it's in this context that we have the universal, our fourth point, we see a universal lust for power is taking place upon the planet of the earth. The actions of these beasts reflect the ambitions and the desires of those who seek dominance and control of, over other people's lives, which I, for the life of me, have never understood. Why would you want to control other people? I mean, literally. But some people essentially are, unfortunately, driven and given to this kind of mentality. But notice the nature of their power. Number one, they have political power. In Revelation 13, verse 2, the first beast is described as having ten horns and seven heads, which are interpreted thus for us later on in the book of Revelation in chapter 17, saying that the ten kings who have not yet received royal power are those horns in Revelation 17 and verse 12. 
And what that does is suggest to us that the beast represents a coalition of political powers that seek to exercise authority over the earth. So the number one thing is the political power. The second thing is religious power. In Revelation 13 and verse 11 through 12, where the beast is described as having two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Uh, This false prophet, as we call him, he uses the religious language and the symbols that he uh, kind of brings upon the people to deceive the people in order to gain ultimate authority over them. And so verse 14 says, and by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell upon the earth. The third source of power is not just political power, religious power, but we see this deception and manipulation, which is a form of power. And as we just saw, he deceives those who dwell upon the earth. Excuse me. But he doesn't just deceive them. In Revelation 13, verses 15 to 17, the second beast is said to force the people to worship the first beast. And he does this by forcing them to receive a mark on the back of the right hand, on their forehead, without which they can't buy or sell. In other words, he manipulates them. And number four, persecution. In Revelation 13 and verse 7, the first beast is said to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And in Revelation 13, verse 15, the second beast is said to cause those who refused to worship the first beast to be killed. It's persecution. This power is, is lusted after and gained. Number five, idolatry. In Revelation 35, uh, 13, excuse me, verse 4, the first beast is said to be worshipped by the people. And they say in verse 4, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And notice the whole verse there. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? In other words, they worshiped the beast, which is the Antichrist, as an idealized man, hear this, and they worshiped the dragon as the God who created this idealized man. You understand this? Long story short, they worship Satan because of the power that he gives to man. And number six, the economic control. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16 to 17, the second beast is said to cause all people to receive a mark on the right hand or the forehead without which they cannot buy or sell. And this suggests that the beast exercises control over this economic system and can use it to manipulate and control other people. You can control a lot of people if you have a lot of money, if you're evil. (laughs) And he uses that system to control the world population. The danger that we talked about in some detail a couple of weeks ago, even last week, is this upcoming FedNow system. I think we need to make sure that we're fed up with this system before it even launches. But the FedNow system is essentially, long story short, it's centralizing all the money in the entire country to the Federal Reserve, which is digital, which is now traceable, which they admittedly, according to the World Economic Forum, are modeling China 
And China is giving social credits and subtracting money from your bank account based upon how you act socially, how you ESG, environmental, social, governmental, how you actually believe, thought crimes are coming, by the way, how you believe about transgenderism, how you believe about different concepts that they are pushing as a basis to divide and conquer. That's all that is. They don't give a rip about that, all that stuff. It's just tools to bring about their ultimate agenda. But the fact is, is this Fed, as we talked about, is coming in July. I was at Big Lots the other day, and they have those new, the new look checkout pads. Have you seen them? And they got the little magnetic pen that's shaped like a triangle. I'm thinking, oh, the LCNI or something. And there it is, and it sticks with magnetic, and you're signing that. My daughter was at uh, NIC. And she said, they have the same, the new FedNow system that's there. It's being incorporated everywhere. The problem is, what they're doing is actually illegal. <laughs> and so they're coming out with the FedNow system. It's a massive overreach that, if challenged, should lose based upon a constitutional basis. As I said, it's illegal. Because under the Constitution, Congress, now they say, well, the, the, the resident has signed an executive order along with the Federal Reserve to make this happen. It's not his job. You don't have the authority to do that. Why do I say that? Under the Constitution, Congress has the power to regulate currency and monetary policy. And this means that the major changes to the monetary system, such as the implementation of a digital currency by which they can track everything you do from now on requires congressional approval. The Federal Reserve is an independent entity, and it has to operate within the constitutional framework. And it's subject to certain legal limitations, if challenged. The Federal Reserve Act gives the Federal Reserve the power to issue notes of, of any denomination. Notice the language, notes not digital currencies, that's in the law. Notes, they're trying to take the notes away. And once they do, we are in deep doo-doo because there's no turning back. They issue notes of any denomination, and number two, conduct open market operations, among other things. However, these powers are still subject to the overall regulatory framework that's established by Congress. The Federal Reserve Act also requires the Federal Reserve to report regularly to Congress and to undergo regular audits to ensure that it's operating within its legal authority. I remember growing up and always seeing Alan Greenspan in front of the Congress. And why is he talking about Congress? Because that's Congress's authority, not the president or resident, either one. <laughs> But if the Federal Reserve were to take over all the banks, which is essentially what's happening, and implement a digital currency without congressional approval, how important was it to win both houses? Steel, I mean. Without congressional approval, which is what's going on, it'll be seen as an exceeding its legal authority and potentially violating the Constitution we the people. And I think this should lead to legal challenges and other forms of pushback from lawmakers and the public. This is a significant departure from the current system of checks and balances established by the Constitution 
and should likely lead to constitutional crisis. Did you hear about India two years ago, was it? They made currency illegal. They banned it overnight. And overnight, the economy collapsed. Interesting. But this is why some have suggested that the Federal Reserve is a cartel. It's not a governmental agency, but it has the appearance of a governmental agency. And they go to great lengths to kind of give it that appearance, that facade. It does have the power of government because Congress voted to give the power of enforcement to it way back when under Woodrow Wilson. That guy was a pawn, wasn't he? But its essence is underneath, that it's underneath, uh, the, the, that it's essentially what it does is it acts like it's its own cartel. And it's nothing different than a banana cartel, an oil cartel, a sugar cartel. It just so happens to be a banking cartel. And they're actually the ones who got together, they drew up the rules and the regulations for their own industries. This is what cartels do. Cartels decide what the rules are for themselves. <laughs> and they regulate their own industry. Then they sent it to Congress, and they took off the labels on the top of the, the you know, said banking cartel, and they erased that, and they said, no, it's the Federal Reserve Act. <laughs> Congress passed it into law, which, by the way, two other times in our history, we've had a Federal Reserve, and two other times it's been abolished. And I think the last time was Andrew Jackson, wasn't it? Our last proper and true president had a picture of somebody on his wall. Hmm, interesting. Signaling pretty loudly what he was intending and doing, which makes you wonder if this cartel was involved in anything to make sure he didn't succeed. I don't know, maybe. The ones that can print money out of nothing. Maybe. Well, nonetheless, way back when, under Wilson's uh, hegemony, Congress passed into law the Federal Reserve Act, and we think it's a governmental agency, regardless if you don't obey the rules that they set down for their own industry, you can actually go to prison. And so it looks like a governmental agency, but it's not. The feds need to be abolished, and there's no other way around it. You can't take the power to create money literally out of nothing. There's nothing there and expect that the power not to corrupt those very men who create the money. I don't care if they're bankers or politicians, you give that kind of power to anybody, eventually they're gonna be corrupted. And there's no checks. It was interesting, a guy, I don't know much about this guy, Robert Breedlove, but what he said was pretty insightful. He said, if they can just print money, why do we pay taxes? He says, if inflation is not theft, I should read it off here. If inflation is not theft and we can just print money when we don't have enough, we can just print more money and give everyone that doesn't have enough money more money. Why don't we just do that instead of paying taxes? Inflation, he said, is legal counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. He goes on to say, so central banking is a coordinated currency counterfeiting cartel that runs the world. It's a Band-Aid. You know what Milton Friedman said about inflation? He said it's just like alcoholism. He says the good effects come early. You print the money, you have the drink, 
you feel good. The hangover comes later. The same is true of inflation. Every time the crisis comes, you have to print exponentially more money because there are exponentially more liabilities in the system from the last round of printing. And so this is why it's unsustainable. And this is why it always culminates in hyperinflation because the central bank not only has the precedent, but also the incentive to continue printing the money until the currency hyperinflates into worthlessness. You think, well, that's destroying the economy. There's a whole other discussion in this that I don't have time to go into, nor do I know that I have the know-how. But long story short, the way it works is they, yes, they're printing more money, but it always funnels back to the guys on top. It, it creates a greater separation in powers. There's a whole discussion of that. But nonetheless, Revelation 13 assumes a massive power grabs on the worldwide scene. But the people of the earth are also involved in this massive lust for power. In Revelation in chapter uh, 13, in verse 4, the people are said to worship the first beast and say, who is like the beast? I mean, this guy, this antichrist, this guy is amazing what he's done. Who can fight against him? Apparently, some people tried to fight against him and were not successful. And this phrase suggests that the people were drawn to the power and they see the beast as strong. He's an unbeatable leader to follow for their own safety and power and authority. Secondly, in Revelation in chapter 17 and verse 2, the kings of the earth are said to have committed sexual immorality with the great prostitute Babylon, which represents a corrupt political and economic system. And this suggests that the rulers of the earth are willing to compromise their values and morals in pursuit of the power and wealth that makes everyone wealthy who partakes in her system. You want to succeed? Invest in what they're doing. You will succeed. But be careful. Number three, in Revelation 18, verse 3, the merchants of the earth are said to have grown rich through the abundance of Babylon's luxury goods. And what this does is suggest that the people are willing to engage in trade and commerce, hear this, even if it supports an oppressive system of power. We would never do that. Well, we wink our eye at slave labor producing our cheap goods. We would never do that. Yes, we would. And number four, in Revelation 19, verses 18 and 19, the kings of the earth gather together to make war against the rider on the white horse, which is Jesus Christ, suggesting that they're willing to fight against God Almighty in order to maintain their own power and authority. And this is a strange situation happening on earth. There has to be some kind of deception going on. <laughs> Look, a kindergartner come to you, I'm going to beat you up. Really? <laughs> but that's how desperate they are. You know, someone has reminded me of prayer this morning is that the God in Psalm 2, he's laughing in the heavens. He looks down on all these machinations and these little guys down here like an anthill. And he says, they're saying, we're going to establish our kingdom. And God looks down and he says, I'm going to set my king on Zion. <laughs> and he laughs. He scoffs at them. I think there's a healthy level of laughing that we need. <laughs> and so what we see is this, this lust for power in the last days. In fact, throughout history, there have been individuals or groups who have sought to gain power 
usually people that are very weak and inept in order to gain control over others. The whole interesting paradigm that we're facing right now is that it's in your face. We'll take the most inept, idiotic person. We'll put them where we want for no other reason to show you we're in control, not you. It's a statement. Don't think that they're ignorant. Go, well, we didn't have anybody else. Really? Really? I mean, literally, like Nancy that works at the 7-Eleven. I mean, she literally could do a better job. <laughs> there you go. It's a statement. It's a statement. And in fact, it's going to be a greater statement. They're going to put him back into the office. It's a statement. We will do whatever we want to do. Thank you very much. Remember, God is in heaven, and he's looking down, and he's laughing at them. I will set my king on Zion. But nonetheless, individual groups have sought to gain power and control over others, which is so strange, whether it's through political, economic, or religious means. And there's a whole variety of reasons that people lust for power. It can be for personal ambition, greed, fear, or even just a desire for security, because the people are generally insecure themselves. In verse 4, they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And so the conditions on earth are going to be of uncertainty. And this Antichrist seems to offer a sense of safety and security, peace and security in the midst of chaos. And also the last days will be known for satanic worship. As the text says in verse 4, they worshiped the dragon. It's interesting because one study that's published in the journal Mental, uh, Mental Health and Religion and Culture, the journal in 2014, it surveyed a group of individuals who were actively worshiping the dragon. We call them Satanists. And they found that these Satanists, or people that adopt that mentality, they tended to score higher on measures of narcissism. Who would have thunk? Machiavellianism. Number three, psychopathy. And they call this actually the dark triad. But this suggests that those who are attracted to Satanism, which, by the way, replace that word with an unabashed lust for power, synonymous. But people that are attracted to Satanism often exhibit personality traits that are associated with power-seeking behaviors. Maybe you remember when you were in school, you'd always see the kids who were kind of outcasts, and some of them were attracted to darkness. Remember that? And these are the kids who've grown up in situations where they felt hopeless, maybe, helpless. Other kids pick on them. And in order to gain a sense of power, sometimes they cling to darkness as a way to gain power in the sense of weakness that they find themselves in. And the idea of worshiping a powerful entity like Satan was appealing to them as they see it as a way to gain power and control over their circumstances. But as opposed to gaining control, they lose it. I have a little bit of experience with people that have been demonically possessed. It's very real. And these entities, they lie to you. 
and they wait for you to be at your weakest moment, and then they enter you. One of the reasons the Bible correlates pharmakia, drug use, illicit drugs, pharmakia with, de- with witchcraft, it correlates the two. The reason it does that is because when you're taking pharm- these illicit drugs, it weakens your resistance, and they can enter you. Like in uh, guys that are into partying, they want the girl to drink alcohol so it weakens her resistance so they can you know, treat her kindly. <laughs> you know, I don't think so. So they can enter her. And in the same regard, in the spiritual round, it, it, those pharmakia weakens the person so they are vulnerable. Another way that people weaken themselves is by deliberately, consciously, consistently, and unconfessedly practicing a lifestyle of sin. And that begins to align myself with their kingdom. And soon enough that, that I open the doors that those things can now take control of me and they can enter in. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. But when we weaken ourselves in these ways, we make ourselves vulnerable to the entrance of these things. This stuff is very real. And they're not your friend. They enter with the promise of power. But as Jesus said, they only come to steal, to kill, and destroy. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And yet Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. If you only knew what God had in plan. He's laying before you life and possibility. Just walk in it. He's offering it to you. But sometimes people so familiarize themselves with what they're familiar with, namely darkness, and their identity gets so wrapped up in that to actually make a transition out of that darkness and into light will have to be a supernatural thing, but it's going to be a conscious decision that's going to create some angst because of the relationships that you have. And yet Jesus said, if you're not willing to leave all other relationships for me, you're not worthy of me. That's painful. But you know what I found? I found that God's a debtor to no man. I'm still looking for the person that truly surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and is saying, man, that was the worst decision I made. You surrender your life to Christ, and what happens? A normalcy, a sanity, a purity, a cleansing, a forgiveness. I mean, just the forgiveness alone is worth it. And yet he not only gives those things, but he giveth, he giveth, and he giveth again. But the devils, they come to steal, to kill, and destroy. They offer, I'll give you power. And as opposed to giving you power, they take that power. If you only knew the plan that God has for your life. In Revelation chapter 13, the people's willingness to worship and to follow the beast reflects their desire for power security, and control. They're drawn to the power and authority that the beast represents in an uncertain world, and they're willing to give up their freedom and autonomy to gain it. I don't know if you saw this a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, I think it was, outside the UN. Man, my nose is itching. I don't want to just scratch it. Outside the new UN, CBN News reported sculptures, which some likened to end times beast described in the Bible, removed from the UN. The UN said that it was just there for a cycle. We cycle in different statues, but nonetheless, they put this beast up there, and they say, dude, that's the beast of Revelation 13. Revelation 13 says, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And of course, we have the fact checkers. Thank you. They're so good. Snopes comes out. And their title was, of their article, A United Nations End Times Sculpture? Question mark. 
And in the article, they go on to say, this is a genuine statue that was installed outside the UN. While a number of people have expressed the opinion that this statue resembles a beast mentioned in the Bible, there are a few things to note about this claim. Now, this is where they get genius. First, this statue was created to depict a guardian of peace and security. <laughs> Not an apocalyptic monster. <laughs> you guys are such idiots. Second, the beast in the biblical passage, which is referred to as a lion, not a jaguar, is generally thought to represent a kingdom. So the second reason, it's a jaguar. It, it's, it, it's, 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 it's a lion, not a jaguar. Snopes? The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's. It's an exact depiction of what's going on. But the thing that you guys already laughed at, and I'm glad because that, that means you have your biblical caps on, if you didn't understand the joke, it's because you don't know a certain verse in the Bible that speaks about this. It says in the last days, the people are going to be crying out for peace and security. So this beast that represents Revelation 13, which is the Antichrist, is placed outside of the United Nations, which is one of the organizations that's trying to bring about this one world order that the Antichrist is going to be part of. Is, is, is dedicated to peace and security. <laughs> and that's why Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 5, for when they say peace and security, that's literally, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they, the UN, will not escape. We don't have to lift a finger. And so notice in Revelation in chapter 13, they're willing to pledge allegiance to the first beast, which represents political power, the Antichrist, and the second beast, which represents religious power. And by giving their allegiance to the beasts, the people are showing their willingness to follow their authority and to submit to their rule, number one. Number two, they're willing to worship the first beast and to follow its commands. And by doing so, the people are giving up their personal autonomy and freedom to make their own decisions and are instead submitting to the will of the beast. Number three, they're willing to accept the mark of the beast, which is described in Revelation 13 as a mark on the right hand or the forehead. And by accepting the mark, the people are giving up their freedom of autonomy to buy and to sell because this one world currency, this digitized system, the mark is necessary now to participate in the economy. And possibly like India, they're going to say all cash is now illegal. Look it up. They did it. What many people believe is they'll say something like, you can only spend up to $1,000 in cash. Anything beyond that is illegal. And slowly, step by step, Cash is abolished. Well, it appears that the beast promises to provide protection and security in exchange for the people's allegiance and submission. But it's not a symbiotic relationship. It's a parasitic one. It's demonic, which always comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Well, it said they worship the dragon, who is the devil or Satan, and it's interesting to me, sadly, that Satanism, when you boil it all down, Satanism is not about worshiping Satan. 
contrary to popular belief. Satan is about a lust for power in the sense that it often involves seeking control, dominance, and self-gratification above all else. Do what thou wilt is their law, and many satanic beliefs and practices prioritize individualism, hedonism, and the pursuit of personal power and pleasure. You know, these things can be fun when you pursue them. But you know what it's like? It's like a sugar rush. Halloween comes around and I tell my little boy, I said, you can eat as much candy as you want for the next, I forgot what I said, 10 minutes or something like this. Because I knew if he just ate it slowly, his teeth would rot out of his head. So I said, 10 minutes, go for it. And he ate that stuff. Like I got it on videotape. It is amazing watching that kid shove that stuff in. And finally, he just, literally in the middle of it, he just stopped. And that bag of candy is still in the cupboard, untouched. He just stopped. It's kind of like I decided that if I ever catch my kids smoking, then, uh, then I'm going to buy a pack of cigarettes for them, and they're going to smoke the entire thing. <laughs> You're smoking it all, baby. <laughs> and that'll be the first and the last time that they do it. And this is what I see going on in the book of Revelation. Paul the Apostle said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. 2 Timothy 3, again, But understand this, that in the latter days, last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, okay, I'm going to stop tapping because I have to tap all the way through this. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, without natural affection, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. In his book, Satanism, the Dark Triad, if I'm saying that word correctly, Perspectives from Religious Studies and Personality Theory by Scott O. Lilienfeld and Erwin D. Waldman, they said, consistent with the hypothesis that Satanism may attract individuals with grandiose self-views, Satanists Satanists is, in this study scored higher on measures of narcissism. Now, replace that word Satanism with unabashed pursuit of power because they're the same thing. Satanism is not worshiping Satan. It's a, it's a principle of modeling the devil in our everyday lives. You have to understand this. It's the unabashed pursuit of power when you boil it down. And by the way, replace the word power with money because money is condensed power. Money's not evil, but the love of money is. It's the root of all evil. And God has his ways in my life to keep me from becoming in love with money. <laughs> and as opposed to freaking out, I say, well, Lord, you own a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. Thank you very much. But isn't that interesting? They say that the characteristic common to Satanists 
are those people who are obsessed with unabashed pursuits of power and pleasure. He says the, the number one common thing there is that they're narcissists. It's all about me. Hmm. Think about someone like Adolf Hitler. Hitler was known for his grandiose sense of self-importance and his actual belief in his superiority. Adolf Hitler saw himself as a messianic figure destined to lead Germany to greatness and saw his vision for Nazi empire that would last for a thousand years. It's called the Third Reich. And so we have number one, narcissism, but number two, Machiavellianism. Also, in his book, Satanism and the Dark Triad, Lillianfield writes, similarly, Satanists, or those who pursue unabashed power, score higher than comparison groups on, Machiavelli on Machiavellianism, a trait characterized by manipulativeness, callousness, and a cynical disregard for conventional moral standards. And you see, people who exhibit Machiavellianism are often skilled at manipulating others and may have little regard for the feeling or the well-beings of those people that are around them. They may use deceit and manipulation to get their goals. And in fact, they may be willing to harm others in order to get what they want. They don't care what they do to you. They don't care if they destroy you. And thus, the narcissism and Machiavellianism go together in the dark triad, actually. But what's a good example of this? Joseph Stalin. Stalin was known for his cunning and manipulative tactics, as well as his willingness to use violence to achieve his political goals. Joseph Stalin, we always talk about Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. Stalin killed more. Stalin killed more than Adolf Hitler ever did. He's responsible for the death of millions of people during his reign as the leader of the Soviet Union. And he's killing his own people. And the third thing is psychopathy and the dark triad. And in the same book, Lillenfield writes, Satanists scored significantly higher than comparison groups on the measure of psychopathy, a constellation of traits that includes a lack of empathy, impulsive behavior, and a ten tendency towards sensation-seeking. Interesting. I would say that we live in a culture that tends towards sensation-seeking. Or as the Bible says, men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The phrase, do what thou wilt, as I already said, is often associated with Satanism. And it's derived from a teaching of Aleister Crowley, who was an influential occultist and magician in the 19th and the 20th century. Crowley's philosophy, which he called Thelema, espoused the idea that individuals should seek to discover their full and fulfill their unique purpose and will in life. Sound familiar? And that they should do so without being limited by societal or moral constraints. And so, you know, you want to have intercourse with that eight-year-old. You shouldn't be limited. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So he said, that's the lima. And this attitude leads to psychopathy. 
where people like Ted Bundy, who showed little remorse for his killing of numerous women, boys or whatever, and showed a complete lack of empathy for his victims. And true to a psychopath, he was able to charm and manipulate people around him. He was known for his ability to appear normal and charming, even while committing these horrific crimes. And so Satanists, he said, scored significantly higher. Those who pursue personal pleasure and power above all things score significantly higher than comparison groups on a measure of psychopathy, a constellation of traits that includes a lack of empathy, impulsive behavior, and the tendency towards sensual sensation seeking. Again, this is exactly what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3. is going to be the, the spirit of the age in the last days. In his book, in their book, uh, Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium, Pamela Donovan and Stephen R. Blevins write, in general, Satanists tend to gravitate towards groups that have authoritarian and hierarchical structures, particularly those that are led by charismatic leaders who exercise considerable control over the group members. And this trait is what we would call number four is authoritarianism. Notice how the principle of do what thou wilt, or as the Bible says, lover of pleasures rather than lovers of God, that how the principle espoused in Satanism, where men worship the dragon in the last days because of the power he gives to the Antichrist, notice how this philosophy invades culture and utterly corrupts it. In Nazi Germany, you often think, how in the world could they do such horrible things? And how many interviews have I listened to where elderly people are saying, we just got caught up in it. We can't even explain it. There was a spirit. That, that's not their words, but that's mine. They said there's just this, this spirit that was there. And they're so ashamed of what they did. Well, did you know that the Nazis were heavily involved in the occult? Heinrich Himmler, for example, who is the head of the SS, established an organization called the, here it is, the Honor, uh, Annenerbe, which was dedicated to studying the occult and the ancient Germanic history. The Annenerbe conducted research into a wide range of topics, including astrology, divination, ritual magic, and it was tasked with discovering the ancient and mystical roots of the Aryan race. And when you gravitate towards authority, you need those people that you can exercise against it. In the screen is a picture of the massive crowds. You notice how it was always perfect. Hitler required everything to be exactly perfect. You know, you got to put over here straight lines here, and everything had to be perfect. Actually, there's theories about why he had his body burned, because there's a great deal of rumor that he was not genetically um, normal in his physical male regions. And so burn my body. And so because of that inadequacy, everything had to be perfect all around him. It's interesting. And the problem is that once you begin to practice this kind of authoritarianism, it doesn't stop. It becomes the addictive like a drug that you can't quit. 
It grows and grows. The more you acquire, the more you have to acquire. The more you're afraid you're going to lose what you acquire, so you have to acquire more and more and more and exercise more and more authority over more and more people. Now, normal people don't do this, but psychopaths do. (laughs) And so you have narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, authoritarianism, and number five, ambition. And people who lust for power often have a strong desire to achieve success and are willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And so they said the pursuit of power and the status are frequently emphasized as primary goals in the satanic groups. Or, again, those who pursue unabashed power at any cost. And they go on to say, consistent with their members' elevated levels of ambition and achievement striving. You know, it's interesting because the Gospels present a case where the devil is actually doing this with Jesus, where he says, bow down to me, and I will give you everything that you see. All right? So at the first coming of Christ, this spirit presented itself. At the second coming of Christ, I would suggest it'll do the same. You ever watch the show, They Sold Their Souls to Rock and Roll? Oh, you have to. It's on YouTube for free. You have to. They sold their souls to rock and roll. You got to watch it. Well, in that, they talk about Jim Morrison, who my mother knew, actually, and she said he was weird. She said she stayed away from him. She said he was weird. He was pursuing her, actually. She's a very attractive woman. But Jim Morrison was the lead singer of The Doors. And you ever wonder why he named his group The Doors? It came from the mystical reference used by William Blake and later by Alex Huxley. The Doors were just that. They were a spiritual door to a spiritual world. And Morrison viewed himself as a shaman. And his job was to uh, mediate between the demonic world and the counterculture of the 1960s. And he was to lead people into that demonic presence. That's his whole philosophy. And Morrison encouraged them to... Break on through to the other side. You ever heard that song? You want to know what that's about? It's the door that he is the shaman. He's going to teach you how to come into contact with this spirit world. And you see, in an interview that he gave, um, Morrison expounded upon his possession. He said the reaction, because he was demon-possessed, the reaction I get now thinking about it, looking back, is that the souls of the ghosts of those dead Indians, maybe one or two of them, were just running around, freaking out, and just leaped into my soul. And they're still in there. You see, after failing his exams, I think it was at UCLA, Morrison went to Venice Beach to live on a rooftop, there's the house right there in the picture, of an abandoned building. And at the time, he didn't even know how to sing. No musical skill. And he writes in The Lost Writings of Jim Morrison, records him as saying that in the year, in that year, there was an intense visitation of energy. I left school and went down to the beach to live. I slept on a roof. I met the spirit of music, an appearance of the devil on the Venice Canal. Running, I saw Satan. In the book, Break On Through, on page 72, Morrison says, I was living in this abandoned office building, sleeping on the roof. 
I just started hearing songs. I heard in my head a whole concert situation with a band and singing and an audience, a large audience. Remember, he has no musical ability. A large audience. And then he says, those first five or six songs I wrote, which were the huge hits, I was just taking notes at a fantastic rock concert that was going on inside of my head. Frank Lisiando, the Doors photographer and a friend of Morrison, said, Jim drank alcohol to quiet the ceaseless clamor of the demons, ghosts, and spirits begging for release. He drank because there were demons and voices and spirits shouting inside of his head. And he found that one of the ways to quell them was with alcohol. The devil promises ambition and promotion. He promises to love you. Like the gigolo, the scumbag that most of us men want to beat up. It's like, baby, I love you so much. And then he gets what he wants. And then he doesn't love you. Or he gets tired of you and finds another one to love. If you know these people, we have a whole group of us that make routine. We go out at night. We have... <laughs> but they only bring ruin. And yet the spirit of ambition, if it feels good, do it. If it works, it must be God, is the pervasive spirit in the last days of Revelation 13. And number six, insecurity. People who lust for power often have an underlying feeling of insecurity and inadequacy, like Hitler, which drive their need for control and dominance. And in some cases, individuals who've experienced trauma, and don't underestimate it, they, they have gone through pain, but they're dealing it with it in a very bad way, creating lots of pain on others. But they've gone trauma or adverse events in their childhood. They develop what the psychologists call a maladaptive coping mechanism that involved trying to control their environment and everybody else around them. They flip if they can't control you. And this can be an attempt to feel safe, to feel secure, while they make a living hell for everyone else. <laughs> And in control in the face of overwhelming emotions or feelings of vulnerability, they act this way. This is often true of dictators. They grew up in an environment where they felt powerless and marginalized, leading them to seek power as a way for compensating for all those feelings. And consequently, they destroy others to make themselves feel safe. That's the narcissistic side of it all. It's all about me. And the fact is, throughout history, people have been willing to do horrible things to other people in order to gain power. Nazi Germany, the Nazi regime in Germany led by Adolf Hitler, was driven by a lust for power, a desire to dominate others. And this led to the atrocities of the Holocaust, in which millions of Jews and other minorities were murdered in the concentration camps. You think about the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, under the leadership of Joseph Stalin, was marked by brutal repression, mass killings of political opponents, 
and other perceived enemies of the state. The Soviet regime was driven by a desire for power and control over the lives of its citizens. What about Rwanda? The Rwandan genocide in 1994 was a result of long-standing ethnic te tensions between the Tutsis and the Hutu populations. The genocide was driven by a desire for power and control over the resources and led to, listen to this, an estimated 800,000 deaths in just 100 days. And largely with machetes. Or about Mao Zedong, uh, China. During the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong regime in China was marked by widespread famine, persecution, mass killings of political opponents. And the regime was driven by a desire for power and control over the population and resulted in the deaths of estimated 45 million people. Makes Hitler look like an amateur. 45 million people. The old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, it's never truer. So let's centralize all the money into eight families for the whole world. And we'd only do good with the ring of power. And let's monitor what everyone does. And if they don't obey our rules, because we're self-regulating now, we penalize them. And without a shot being fired, we take over the world. What Napoleon, Hitler, and other Alexander the Great could not do, we will do without firing a single bullet. It is the most aggressive action that has ever been taken on the United States, ever. You heard about the Stanford prison experiment? The Stanford prison experiment conducted by social psychologist Philip, Philip Zimbardo in 1971 is perhaps one of the most uh, famous studies on the topic. The experiment involved assigning volunteer college students to play roles as prison guards, and prisoners were also adopted to play as the prisoners in a prison environment. The guards were given a significant degree of power and control over the prisoners. And in the experiment, within a few days, these, pris these prison guards began to engage in abusive and cruel behaviors towards them. And the study was ended prematurely due to the severity of the abuse. You know, there's consequences today if a prison guard does something bad. And that's good. But they said, you're in charge. You can do what you want. And almost overnight, they started doing horrifically cruel things to the prisoners and took, began to take pleasure in it. And so they shut the experiment down because it was getting so perverse. Or have you heard about the Milgram obedience uh, experiment? The Milgram experience is famous as a social study, probably following the, uh, trying to figure out what happened in Nazi Germany. Why did these people obey? But nonetheless, it was conducted, a, so, a social psychology study was conducted in 1961 by Stanley Milgram. And its purpose was to see if ordinary people would obey an authority figure that was in a, a lab coat. He looked like he was in charge, and he would tell them that if the people in the experiment messed up or said the wrong word, they were to push a button. And when they pushed the button, it would give the people an electric shock, and these people would begin to 
to obey these guys over the top of them, even though it caused them tremendous angst. Now, some of them took pleasure in it. But many of the people are thinking, oh my gosh, but he kept doing it. These people kept doing it over and over and over again because an authority figure told them to do it. The shocks, they weren't real, but the participants didn't know that. And even though the learners acted like they were in pain, the majority of the participants continued to administer the shocks when instructed to do so by the experimenter in the lab coat, even if it made them uncomfortable. And it was a really interesting experiment that revealed a lot about how people react to authority. It revealed that people are often willing to obey authority figures, even if it means acting against their own values and causing harm to other human beings. Which reveals the actions of individuals in regimes like Nazi Germany with oppressive leadership like the, and the horrible things they did that people will do to preserve their lives. You know, one in a thousand stand against the tide. You can see in the picture, everyone's saluting. This is a famous picture, and one guy sitting there going, I ain't saluting this thing. One in a thousand. One in a thousand. You touch your money. You say, I'm going to stand against it. You got your money. I'm going to stand against it. I got my house. I'm going to stand against it. Take that stuff away. Are you going to stand against it still? One in a thousand. Regardless, this is human nature. And when people are willing to do horrible things to preserve their lives and gain power, it's often a reflection of their desire to prioritize their own survival and interests above those of others. You say, well, yeah, but this is wrong. <laughs> and unfortunately, this can lead to actions that are unethical, immoral, violent, as individuals may be willing to sacrifice the well-being of others in order to achieve their own goals. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. And what people don't realize is the principle of the love of money or the willingness to do evil to people fundamentally stem from the same principle. Both of them stem from a desire for personal gain or benefit, even at the expense of other men. And the love of money can lead to unethical behaviors such as greed, fraud, theft, and exploitation. And in the same way, a willingness to do evil to others, such as committing acts of violence, oppression, injustice, they stem oftentimes from a desire for power and control and personal gain. And in both cases, the individual's own interests take precedence over the well-being and benefit of others. It's pure selfishness. And as the result in the actions can be devastating the consequences. Remember the old World War II? We call that the, the greatest generation. And then the movies that came out in the 60s, and they'd always show the guy, the hand grenade would go down, the guy would jump on top of it and boom, blow himself up. And nowadays, what are they doing? They see the hand grenade, they're running the other direction. <laughs> nowadays, they'll grab a little kid and throw him on top. Well, they're expendable. <laughs> I'm aborting him now. <laughs> He's 18. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, when do you draw the line, right? You don't. You never draw the line once you go down that road. In fact, the process of America's decline in moral values, at least internally, 
may well be underway as a recent Wall Street Journal University's Chicago poll found that the core values of America have recently changed. And what they found is the percentage of Americans who described patriotism as either important or very important fell from 70% to 38%. They found that those who valued religion, it fell from 62% to 39%. Having children from 59% to 30%. And community involvement 47% to 27%. I tell you the truth, this is the hard one. I go on walks all the time. And people drive by and they wave and stuff, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't care. I really don't care, but I'm like, Ben, you're such an idiot. Stop being that way. So I humble myself and I smile and I wave, and I'm thinking, why, why do I have this? I don't want to wave. Why is that in me? I don't know, but I fight against it. <laughs> I don't give in to it. I don't feel like being nice, but I do. I choose to. And so I wave. But it's, we don't want to be involved with the community. We want to isolate ourselves. And even the percentage of Americans valuing tolerance of others has dropped from 80% to 58%. You know only one out of the 10 increased in value? And you know what it was? Money. Money increased as being the importance in their life, the most important thing in our life. Money used to be 31%, and now nearly half the population says that is the most important pursuit in our life, 43%. Tells you a lot, doesn't it? The love of money is the something. And in the culture that values the accumulation of wealth above all else, which we're getting there quickly, it reinforces the same principle that allows people to do horrible things to others to advantage or preserve itself. And if people are willing to compromise their values and morals in pursuit of wealth and power, these are the types of traits that are naturally attractive to an oppressive regime that promises financial gain and stability especially if that person is naturally a fearful person. So when we look at the principle of the lust for power in the last days, it's clear that it's deeply ingrained in the human nature. And this principle is reflected in the Bible's statement that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And people often fail to realize that the willingness to do evil to others and the love of money stem from the same desire for personal gain or benefit at the expense of others, if necessary, if necessary. And when we look at the conditions that can arise from the lust for power, we can see that they're all too present in today's society. Increased inequality, political polarization, exploitation and abuse, psychological distress, erosion of trust, loss of autonomy, increased violence, undermining the democratic process. We just take your vote from you. The loss of creativity and innovation 
And I would suggest that all of these are potential consequences of the constant pursuit of power and success and money. I don't want to work hard anymore. I just want money. So I'll do very underhanded things to get it. If you work hard, is it good for you? Don't fall in love with that money. But I'll tell you the truth, you need it. Because if you're working hard, you're spending all of your time you know, working, so you got to pay a guy extra money so he can mow your lawn. <laughs> you don't have time. You know, it's interesting that Job, in the book of Job, Satan asked God, does Job fear God for nothing? And what he was saying is, he is selfish like everybody else. But you take away the blessings that you put on his life, he'll curse you. He'll behave like everybody else does. The only reason he's not that way is because of your blessing. And God says, okay, fine. You can take away his resources, but you can't touch the man. And the whole story begins to play out to prove that Job, though misunderstood, slandered by good religious people, who we call Pharisees in the New Testament, were rebuking him and standing in authority as Job is suffering. They're like, well, the reason this is going on is because of happening. They, they use the opportunity of his distress to express their disdain for him. Yeah, that's a noble trait, isn't it? Don't do that to people. When they're going through a trial, don't take that as an opportunity to tell them what you don't like about them. <laughs> it's like, geez, let's think here. Don't kick, the old phrase, don't kick a dog while he's down. And he says, that's the only reason he serves you. You bless him. Now, what makes the Christian unique? <laughs> I'm not the natural man. I've been born again by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's come into my heart, and he lives his life, and he changes me. He convicts me when I do wrong, and those weird thoughts come up in my head. I say, Lord, I feel bad about them now. I used to not feel bad about them. And I'm not surprised if I'm tempted. Some of you guys are immature enough. You get tempted, and you think you're walking in sin. Look, temptations come. What do you deal with that? You just say, golly, that thought came into my head. Lord, forgive me. I'm a discipline. I'm a, dis I'm a disciple. I'm a disciplined one. Yeah, that thought came into my head. doesn't mean I'm going to do it. God, forgive me. Cleanse me, wash me. But I've been born by the Spirit of God. And he's a regenerate man. Born again by the life of Jesus Christ. Enters into the man. And Jesus says, now I will produce my life in you so that men will look at you and glorify the Father in heaven. And when you screw up, you'll confess your sins. Don't confess your sins if people don't know about them. It freaks them out. But if you screw up and then you... And then you confess your sins. I'm sorry for doing that. Even in your screw-up, you can represent the king through your confession. Listen to these verses. Jesus says to those that would be born again, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Anybody afraid about what's going to happen on planet Earth? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He said in John 14, verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Highlight that word, let. It's a choice. It's a choice. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If this were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place? If this were not so, I would have told you. It's true. 
And then in verse 3, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to be with me, that where I am, you may be also. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. And Titus, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples. God's grace is his ability to give you the power to be something you otherwise couldn't be, to do something you otherwise couldn't do. He says, the grace of God, it's available for everybody. And he goes on to say, training us to renounce ungodliness. You don't have to live that way. You can renounce it. Start with a mental process. It's not okay for me to do this. Literally, confess it. I did it. Okay, walk around in guilt and shame and earn your salvation back over the next week. God, give me another chance. And he does, and you fail worse. Stupid. He doesn't want to give you another chance. He wants you to agree that you're not good. <laughs> I'm going to grab you up here and just slap you publicly. <laughs> Start praying differently, God. I desire doing evil. It is not okay for me to desire to do evil. I want to do evil, but I want to serve you. And I don't want to do that thing anymore, but I did that thing. It's not okay for me to do that. That's called repentance. Change your mind. He'll change your heart. You're trying to change your heart, you proud Pharisee. (laughs) You change your mind. And to live self-controlled, and upright and godly lives in the present age. Some of you young men, go to the gym three times a day. It'll solve all your problems. All of them. Then he goes on to say, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation ends, and he who testifies to these things says, speaking of Jesus, he says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And Lord, there is an evil side to all of us that lusts for power, but we're really expressing a deep insecurity. And Lord, money's not wrong. It's not good. It's just money. But the love of money, whew, it leads to all sorts of evil. And that, that system of Satanism, though we kind of correlate it to people in black robes, the principle is throughout our culture. Do what thou wilt. And God, while we don't want to enforce moral rules, um, As a primary goal, we want to, of course, learn to take Jesus in. I pray that you'd heal our country. I pray that you'd forgive our sins. Wash us from unrighteousness. Heal our hearts. There's wounds in the room. Heal our hearts, Lord. I pray, God, for your spirit.
to be on your church. Let us be those that could be so free on the inside that our friends and loved ones that don't know you, we could become beacons of light, not beacons of judgmentalism, but we preach the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. That if we're living in despair ourselves, how in the world are we going to share the hope that is within us? I think many of us need to remember the hope by which we are called. I made it a choice early in my life to make sure every conversation to the best of my ability ended with me giving hope. Never trying to leave people discouraged and hopeless. I pray, God, that we could be those people. Let us bring the hope of our salvation to our friends. Heal our hearts, Lord. We're so caught up. Set us free. We thank you, Lord. All glory and power and dominion and praise only and ever belong to you. We take the pieces of our lives. And as we've tried to pick them up and put our life back together so many times, this time is different. We pick up the pieces and we just simply put them in your hands. And so, God, we deliver it to you. We ask for your praise and renown that you do use the broken things of this world to confound the wise. And for all of eternity, we could rest as multi-trillionaires. But for now, it is what it is. Help us not to be affected in the way the rest of the world is. Help us to be beacons of light in this moment of opportunity. Let us live for another kingdom while we are in this world. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.